Welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of the Gen X Mixtape Rock and Roll Special, where Alan and I will be curating side A of a mixtape of self-aware songs about the most popular genre of the 20th century. That's right. Well, here we are. Season two. Season two. Inconceivable. Yes. We uh, come a long way. We're back and we're vaxxed. Yes, yes, we are no longer six feet apart, which is kind of nice. Yes, We're, nice, yes. Uh, back in a, a booth that is shareable. Yeah, the vaccination makes a world of difference. Yep. Um, still not a whole lot of difference from what I can tell, except now we have toilet paper. But but the vaccination is here, so please, folks, uh, can't encourage you enough to, to make sure that you go out and get the vaccination once you are eligible. I feel like things are opening up this... They are. They're going to open up this summer, I think. Yeah, oh, I'm... I, I really believe this summer we'll be back, not not back to normal, but it'll be much closer than than I think we probably imagined it would some, be. Some concerts, so, I think, uh, probably yeah, get to uh, go ahead. Looking hopefully. forward to it, absolutely. Well, this first episode of season two, uh, as Dave said, we are uh, we're celebrating rock and roll, and all the songs that we have chosen do have rock or rock and roll in the title. As Dave said, very much self-aware. Now, no, wait, before we begin here, this is something that I'm. we need to settle. Okay. And I don't think we can settle it because I think it's, you're going to get various opinions. But um, is it rock and roll, A-N-D? Is it rock and roll with the ampersand? Is it rock and roll with apostrophe and apostrophe or rock apostrophe and roll or rock and apostrophe roll? <laughs> Which is it? Um, I have always gone rock and roll. Um, the and, uh, why, why add letters as far as I'm concerned? Um, generally, I just do the, the one apostrophe, rock apostrophe. Before or after and the end, because I've seen it both ways. I, I usually do it before. Before, okay. Rock and roll. Yeah, I am. Um, but I, I can tell you looking at the titles of the song selections that I brought with me that uh, the artists themselves can't agree with this. So. Every single one I mentioned is an example from one of the picks that yeah, I made. So m- mine as well. No consistency whatsoever. None. No. Um, and of course, I, I should add, um, yeah, in terms of parameters, um, you and I had talked. Uh, there are no songs on my list that do not refer to music. So the Scorpions, for example, Rock Me Like a Hurricane, or Rock You, Rock You Like a Hurricane, um, is not eligible because very clearly, like all the blues artists that used rock and roll long before Alan Freed uh, coined the phrase, uh, very much about sex. So uh, all, all the songs are music related. Likewise, Stevie so, Ray Vaughan's If the, uh, the Van is a Rockin' Don't Come a Knockin'. I have that one. Oh, do you? What's okay. that? If the house is a rock. House is a rock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. am I saying? The van. What's on my mind here? Uh, George um, Carlin. Yeah. No, I, I, I was going to say, though, that's one that I went back and forth on. Oh, so okay. it's probably just a, you know, a double meaning one. So, yeah. Now, that one I, I have, I'm glad you picked but, it because yeah. I, I decided not to. Oh, this one was tough. You know, I at first I really I, I just kind of blanked and I, I had maybe maybe eight, ten titles and I was thinking there aren't that many and then suddenly they all came to me at once and I had a list of probably 40 songs and finally whittled it down there are a lot of crowd pleasers that I think I probably left off because I was trying to find that balance of uh, what may be expected and just some songs that maybe people have not heard in a long time so um, hopefully we'll fill in the gaps for another. Yeah, yes. I had the same criteria. I, I focused on, on music. There were a few that were clearly about 
but something else that I chose not to include. I, I suppose on the Steve Ray Vaughan one, if it were a van, it would be maybe more sexually yes. uh, explicit. Uh, as far as house, um, yeah, probably a bar. So uh, you're good on that one. But uh, yeah, I, I thought the same way. I thought at first, you know, are we going to find enough? And yeah, there were so many to choose from um, and, and so many to choose from specifically about the musical genre. Believe it or not, um, most of the ones that I kind of centered around are right in the early 80s. There are a lot of early 80s. Mine picks. too. My, mine are primarily 70s and 80s. Yeah. What, what I did find is once you hit, well, once you hit grunge, really, once you hit the 90s, the rock and rock and roll just are not titled songs, at least not that I could find, not not many. I mean, you do have Nickelback, you know, the, the band. Well, we, we're talking about rock. I agreed, yeah. I was just going to say the band you either love to hate or hate to love, or perhaps a little of both. Um, you know, they, they released Rockstar uh, about six years ago, but th- there really is not, there are not a lot of songs uh, with rock, rock and roll in the title after the 80s. Um, right. So, and surprisingly, not that many in the 60s, which kind of shocked yeah, me yeah. as well um but plenty here from the 50s 70s and 80s so we'll we'll see see how it goes and if we have time at the end which we won't of course we'll probably have to devote a special episode to it i would love to discuss at some point um the fate of of rock and rock and roll ah. in popular music today and has it finally just been relegated to a, a, a niche genre kind of like jazz i mean jazz will always be around but it's no longer the popular format of music obviously that yeah. the transition happened you know in the 50s and so are we to that point now where it's it's it i mean I understand, too, it depends on how you define rock and roll. The the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame defines hip-hop and, and, and rap and um, other forms of music that don't have traditional rock and roll instruments is the focal point as part of rock. So in that sense, I guess rock is still here. But uh, the rock and roll that we uh, are familiar with and we would define guitar-based, bass, drum primarily, right. um, is that is that gone? Is that pretty much gone from popular music? So. You know, I don't... I. I waver. I go back and forth. I, I, can, I can tell you, I am now a Rock Hall member. Um, went ahead and got a membership after all these years and was just there not too long ago. Um, but you're right. I mean, everybody is presented. I mean, they, they have the, the disco and they have the clearly the, the pop music stars and they have the, the rap and the hip hop. I mean, it's, it's probably, it's very all-inclusive with the exception of country and jazz. Hmm. Only Miles Davis has made it for jazz and... That there are no country artists. I mean, people are still in an uproar that Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, some of the major crossover artists that were very well. Johnny's there. Johnny's there. It's got to be. Well, yeah. John, yeah, 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 yeah. But but he he of course started out at Sun Records. Sure, so certainly. Not, not uh, certainly not the quite the same thing. Right. All right. Well, it is side A. So I believe if we're consistent, I begin. Yeah. Um. So my first song I'm going to bring to the table is by Bob Seger, and it is old time rock and roll. Good choice. I didn't choose it because I figured, A, you would have it. And B, I'm not a huge fan of the song, but really? it belongs on this list. It definitely oh. belongs on the mixtape. I, so. I, well, I'm a huge Seeger fan, and I've always loved the song. It, it peaked at number 28 in 1978. It comes from the Stranger in Town album. Uh, it's one of the few songs recorded by Seeger that made a uh, huge you know, a huge splash on the charts that he did not write. Uh, it was actually written by songwriters George Jackson and Thomas Jones, who worked for the Muscle Shoals Sound Studios, uh, where the song was recorded. Singer uh, Seeger recorded his, his own version with the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. Um, of course, that famous group of studio musicians who owned the famed recording studio in Alabama. 
Uh, they'd worked with everyone from Aretha Franklin to Paul Simon to Neil Young to Rod Stewart. Uh, the Muscle Shows musicians, they, they usually gave uh, a feeling of authenticity, which was really important to Seeger because his previous album, Night Moves, was very successful, and he didn't want to be perceived as selling out to pop radio. Um, although Seeger worked on the lyrics, he didn't take any songwriting credit, ironically. Uh, according to Seeger, he, he was feeling generous the day that he and the Silver Bullet Band recorded the track. So 40-plus years later, he concedes that not seeking composer credit on the song was the dumbest thing he ever did. Um, Seeger rewrote the lyrics pretty much in their entirety. The, the only words that remained unchanged from the Muscle Shows demo are old-time rock and roll. And of course, among his many lyrical changes, uh, Seeger made sure to take a dig at disco music, which was already fading in popularity at the time. Um, but without the songwriting credit, Seeger doesn't own the publishing rights to the song, and, and it's only Jackson and Jones who control when and how it is used in movies and commercials. So that said, the song will, uh, for, for good or ill, always be associated with a young Tom Cruise dancing in his underwear in the 1983 film Risky Business. The scene oh, quickly entered the zeitgeist, you know, leading to parodies, tributes, even Halloween costumes. Seeger, though, says he's okay with it. Um, he likes, actually, that the song is closely associated with the underwear-clad crews because he says he gets a kick out of it. Yeah, no, it's a great song. And I, when I say I'm not too keen on it, it's just probably because it's been overplayed for me, you know. Oh, yeah. Because I remember do like I, I remember liking the song very much. It's just not one that I usually put on or leave on. Yeah. Um, but it's a great song. And, and I think it's a great one to start off the at least the, the broadcast today because that's what we're talking about. Rock and roll songs about rock and roll in honor of the genre. Absolutely. And uh, that's exactly what that song is about. So yep. at the same, I, mean, I feel the same way about Seeger, about Bob Seeger. I, I, I respect him. I like several of the, you know, recordings that he's done, but I'm just not a big fan. You know, I, 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 I am a, a huge fan of Seeger. Um, I, I love a lot of his deep cuts as well, but I don't find myself playing him very often. Uh, like you, I think I, I went through a phase, you know, in my late teens, early twenties where it was classic rock radio all the time. That's what I had uh, tuned to my car. That's what I had tuned to my, my bedroom, of course. And uh, Seeger was just a mainstay. So he, he's kind of like the Eagles in that respect for me. He's yeah. he, he, I just yeah. heard him so much. It was so saturated that right. um, just kind of took a break. And when I do put him on, I, I still groove. I love I love the stuff that he, he's put out there. But yeah, I, I, I don't gravitate to his catalog just of my own volition unless... I'm feeling the need for a specific song. So there is one song I really, really like by him. Which one? It's not one that you probably ever expect. It was um, kind of a minor hit. One of his later ones. Shame on the Moon. Oh, great song! Yeah, great song. I, I love that. Not song. what I would have 
expected. You're right. That, yeah. But it, no, fantastic song. All right, my turn? Your turn. Okay, well, uh, let's get another one out there that does the same thing as old-time rock and roll, another ode to rock and roll. This one, I Love Rock and Roll. Oh, we have a match. Originally a cover of the 1975 song by The Arrows, uh, which was written in as a response to another song that I have later in the list. Um, Joan Jett's 1982 version uh, was her highest charting single, staying at number one on Billboard for seven weeks. Mm-hmm. So we're talking smash it. Oh, yeah. From somebody who came from the Runaways, which was kind of a you know manufactured all-girl punk band from the late 70s to kind of break through um, with this song in such a big way is, is huge. Um, it was later covered, by the way, by Britney Spears, <laughs> Britney yeah. Spears Britney in 2002. Yes. Uh, uh, which, which surprisingly is not as terrible as you may think, but it's no Joan Jed, but of course. I'll have to listen to it for our um, extra alternative um, alternates and mentioned uh, songs playlist. Yep. This is one of the first current songs that I remember um, as it was popular on the cusp of my independent musical journey. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, prior to this, I think we all had um, the music our parents listened to. So I remember listening to everything from the Bee Gees to the Beatles uh, in my, my dad's car. Um, but about the point, I don't know how old we would have been, about 10 years old probably at the time. <sighs> Nine, ten, yeah, yeah. Right, right around there. Um, a lot of these songs are songs that, that I, I heard for the first time. Uh, so 82 must have been that, that year that I really kind of jumped into everything because this one, I, I kind of remember, I think, kids singing this on the playground at Woodland Elementary oh, as yes. well. Yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason. Well, you know, every, everybody did. Uh, Joan Jett loved rock and roll and everyone loved the song. You know, <laughs> it was just, and, and you're right, the song is so closely associated with Jett that most listeners don't realize it's a cover. Right, right. You know, I, and uh, who are the arrows? I mean, has anybody in our listening audience ever heard <laughs> Of the arrows, I mean, I, I know the song, um, but I, it's kind of funny because the arrows, their version flopped, but the band earned a TV show that ran for one season from '76 to '77 in the UK. Right. And Jet saw the show when she was touring the UK with the Runaways, and she wanted to record the song, but the other Runaways weren't into it. So um, it wasn't until after the Runaways split up that Jet recorded a version, um, and she actually recorded with Paul Cook and Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols. Oh, Did you know that? I didn't know that. That was the original wow. uh, Jet recording. That was 79. It earned some airplay on alternative stations. Um, but later, she, of course, re-recorded the song with her band, The Black Hearts, and, and you know, signed with Boardwalk Records. I saw him dancing there by the record machine. Yeah, it's, it's just a fun song. It's one of those that I that it, it's funny because as we mentioned on the earlier pick, some songs we become saturated with and get to the point where we can't really listen to it anymore. At least not in the same way we listened to it originally. This is one that doesn't get old for me. Yeah, that guitar riff, uh, Jet's vocals, the attitude that's brought out by the production. Um, as you mentioned, it was kind of a re. Uh, recording of a, of a recording of a cover, um, but they still managed, even though it was somewhat more polished, they still managed to maintain that kind of raw, rebellious energy. Oh yeah, which is Definitely. difficult to do sometimes when you go into the studio. It can sound really commercial, but I felt like that 
I mean, it's not quite as raw as the, as the one she recorded before, but, um, but it still maintains that energy. Um, all right. Well, for my second choice, I am going way back. Um, this is a tune written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who pretty much wrote anything that came, uh, came out and hit the charts in the 50s. Uh, this one has one of the most memorable intros in rock history. Two guitar chords followed by snare drum hits. Uh, that intro lasts just six seconds, but the pattern, it repeats throughout the verses, and it really establishes a firm musical hook that remains the envy of songwriters to this day. I am talking about Elvis Presley's Jailhouse Rock. Huh. I didn't even think about that one. Uh, yeah. The song was featured in the Elvis movie of the same name. Uh, Elvis, of course, in that film plays a wrongly accused convict who becomes a star when he gets out. Um, the iconic dance sequence, though, from that film when Elvis performs the song in prison, is usually cited as his greatest moment on screen. Now, he set the bar pretty low, because Elvis was a terrible actor. <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean, that is probably the most iconic moment uh, that you will, that, that we have of Elvis, you know, on the, on the big screen. The film was originally titled Ghost of a Chance, but after the song was recorded, it was clear it was going to be a hit. So the movie was retitled Jailhouse Rock after the single. Um, it was number one on the U.S. pop charts for seven weeks. It also reached number one on the country and R&B charts. Uh, in the U.K., it entered the charts at number one. It was the first song in history to do so. And the single uh, was released in September of 57. It reached number one by October 21st, and that was still two weeks before the movie was released. Interestingly, as an aside, the line number 47 said to number three, you're the cutest Jobert I ever did see, may be the first nod to homosexuality in rock and roll. But it was such a sly reference to prison sex that it did not offend. And so the censors totally missed it and, and there was no controversy over the song. People just didn't assume there were co-ed prisons back in the... I, I guess. <laughs> I, I do not know. That's true. I never thought about that. But uh, yeah, it's the first nod to homosexuality um, in, in rock and roll, at least so far as I could find I was a huge Elvis fan growing up, and I've, I've since kind of uh, fallen away from that. I still love the King. I, I, you know, he, he uh, you can get into arguments about cultural appropriation and, you know, the like. Um, you know, Little Richard would be the first to say that they've been playing rock and roll long before Elvis, and it was called Rhythm and Blues, of course. Um, but he opened doorways for acts that would otherwise have remained shut. And frankly, He's the king for good reason. I'd like to remember him in the 50s, not as Fat Elvis in his leisure suits, uh, you know, on stage. But um, nonetheless, yeah, Jailhouse Rock, it is just, it, it's a killer. It, it is probably Elvis's greatest song as far as I'm concerned. So had to include it on the list. 
Yeah, so. great choice. I don't know why I didn't even think of that. Very good. All right. Last one was from 1982. This one's also from 1982. Okay. The song after this that I'm going to talk about is from 1982. So 1982 was a big year, not only, as I mentioned, for me as an independent music fan, but for um, songs about rock and roll. Uh, and this one here is by the Stray Cats. We have another match. <laughs> I figured we'd two have a match two, two for, on a lot already. of these yeah. here. Yep. A lot of these. Rock This Town. Rock This Town uh, from their album Built for Speed. And this rockabilly tune reached number nine on the Billboard charts back in 82 and portrays the signature sound of the Sun Records meets punk trio Stray Cats. The band who used various names with cats in the title so they could play consecutive nights at certain clubs gained the following playing clubs like CBGB's, Max's Kansas City. So they are kind of part of that whole... Um, you know, kind of punk scene. Oh yeah, uh, of in New York in the, in the late seventies, and they kind of became a favorite of many established artists, including members of the Who and Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones. So you got to kind of imagine as a couple of young kids playing this very out of date, right, out of date uh, oh, yeah. musical genre, incorporate it with the attitude of punk, and next thing you know, you have Mick Jagger or you know Jimmy Page coming to uh, oh, your yeah. shows. That's got to be pretty, uh, pretty the, exciting. Power of rockabilly. Yeah, the band reached their uh, peak commercial success in the early '80s, uh, but frontman and guitarist Brian Setzer broke up the band so he could play with other artists and uh, record with other projects, including Brian Setzer Orchestra. Before that, who did he play with? Uh, Robert Plant. Remember, they had one one or two big hits. They were just kind of a little side project, The Honey Drippers. Was he in The yeah, Honey Drippers? Honey Drippers. I did yeah. not know he was a member. I, yeah. I, I knew Plant, of course, but really, Brian Setzer was a member yeah. of The Honey Drippers. Yeah. Sea of Love. Okay. Looking back now, he regrets uh, breaking up the Stray Cats when they were kind of still gaining momentum. Um, but at the time, you know, he was just kind of riding this wave, and uh, and he took it. Um, the band did reunite for tours uh, later on, and, uh, you know, continue to have solo careers, each of them kind of in different projects. But uh, as you mentioned, probably the most famous being the swing-based Brian Setzer Orchestra. I'm just, I'm just blown away. I had no idea Brian Setzer was a member of the Honey. I learned something new. That is very cool. Makes sense because it was all 50s tribute, you yeah, know. Um, right. But yeah, I just never never knew that. Um, yeah, it, you know, it was kind of funny because they, they put out their first two albums in Britain. Because they had went to the UK because the UK was, it was very much um, kind of the epicenter for the Tommy Boy uh, culture. T Teddy Boy. Teddy Boy. Teddy Tommy Boy, Boy, Tommy is, a, Boy. <laughs> is a movie with, uh, <laughs> with Chris Farley. <laughs> Ooh, okay, I misspoke on that one. Yeah, um, yeah, because it, it, it really was. I mean, that, the UK, I mean, they spearheaded that nascent rockabilly revival. Right. So the Cats went to the UK and... You know, they, they released their first album, Stray Cats, in 81 on Arista. Um, on that album, you found Runaway Boys, Rock This Town, Stray Cats, Strut. And then the UK follow-up, Stray Cats Gonna Ball, it just wasn't as well-received, and it provided no hits in the UK. But finally, uh, based on their popularity, EMI America compiled the best tracks from those two albums, and they issued the, the Built for Speed album, is what it was called here in the US in 82. And Built for Speed, it actually went platinum in the U.S. It was the number two record on the Billboard album charts for 15 weeks. I 
if I remember correctly, was the video animated? No, Stray Cat's Trout was the one that was animated. Rock This Town um, sets, the, the boys are on stage and there's that's like right. a brawl going on in the back. Is of this the, where the woman comes, yells out the window? No, that's Stray Cat's Trout. That's Stray Cat's Trout. That was animated? Yeah, that was, because, oh. uh, well, parts of it. Okay. Parts of it. Okay. Um, no, this one, uh, Brian Setzer brings his date, but he's he's both on the dance floor and on stage, okay. kind of, and uh, someone is hitting on the girl and a brawl ensues and then they run out of the bar room out off the dance. I, I, I remember it, but I don't remember it well enough to give you greater details than that. Um, no, Stray Cat Strut was the one that had some animation and she's sexy in 17. I think he, that was just the three of them on stage performing, right. if I remember correctly. But um, no, great song. That was actually my next pick. Oh, okay. So uh, I got to skip my number three. And then I can skip my number four because that was I Love Rock and Roll <laughs> by Joan Jett. So I am already hitting my alternates list. Um, let's begin with... Uh, I don't want to use that one yet because I think you might have chosen that as well. Um, okay. I'm going to... 1986. You're going to laugh at this one, but I had fun with it. It's my dark horse. Uh, from the album Falco 3... This hit number one in 86. It is called Rock Me Amadeus. It was on my short list, was but it? it didn't yeah. make my list. Um, it made my alternates, yeah. Uh, the song uh, with lyrics in German is about the classical composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, of course. Uh, Mozart was a child prodigy, performed his first musical tour at the age of five. Uh, his last three years were his most successful, and uh, he had an extremely excessive lifestyle. The basic concept um, is the suggestion that Mozart was the rock and roll rebel of his day. And uh, the lyrics, I actually looked, I, I translated them. Uh, some of the lyrics in Rock Me Amadeus reflect this. So here, here's an English translation. He was the first punk ever to set foot on this earth. He was a genius from the day of his birth. He could play the piano like a ring and a bell. And everybody screamed, come on, Rock Me Amadeus. With a bottle of wine in one hand and a woman in the other, his mind was on rock and roll and having fun. Because he lived so fast, he had to die so young, but he made his mark in history. Still, everybody says, Rock Me Amadeus. So we were deprived of that uh, history lesson because we didn't know German. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Falco, his real name was Johann Hossel, uh, born in Vienna, Austria in 57. He was an established artist in German-speaking territories long before Rock Me Amadeus was released. But well, it, he had the hit... Um, um, Der Kommissar, yeah, the, which later was covered by... Covered no, later. After the fire. Oh, is it after the fire? After the fire, yeah. Man, I am just butchering... That's all right. It's butchering it's, all my trivia today. It's the first episode of season is, two. We're is. a little rusty here. Duracoma. Yeah, I am... Um, why was I thinking... It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so I... He, he was. He was very popular. Uh, but Rock Me Amadeus, it was the first huge international hit. And in most countries, including the U.S., it was his only hit. Uh, he continued to have success, though, in mainland Europe. But he ended up a tax exile and died in a car crash in February 98 at age 40. Oh, I didn't know he passed. Yeah. What, what year? 88? Uh, 98. Oh, 
er alles tat. Er hatte Schulden, denn er träumt, doch ihn liebten alle Frauen. Und jeder rief, er kam mit mir Amadeus. Er war ein Superstar, er war populär, er war so exaltiert, die Kasse hatte Flair. Er war ein Virtuose, war ein Rock-Idol. Und alles rief, er kam mit mir Amadeus. Another German language song by Nina went to number two in 84. That was 99 Luck Balloons, of course. Uh, but Rock Me Up Days is the only number one to ever reach uh, that tough spot on Billboard in German. Uh, in fact, Rock Me Up Days is only one of eight non-English songs to ever reach number one hmm. on the Billboard Hot 100. Um, the other ones... Uh, I actually looked it up. Nel Blue de Pinto be de Blue. <laughs> oh boy. It's by uh, Domenico Madugno. Um, in, in parentheses, it says Valare. So I don't know if that's the Valare I'm thinking of or if that's a different song. Um, the Valare I'm thinking of is Dean Martin primarily. Um, but that was Italian. Sukiyaki uh, by Q Sukamato. Uh, that hit number one in 63. Dominique by the singing nun was French. That was 63. Rock Me Amadeus followed by La Bamba. Not Richie Valens, but Los Lobos cover. Macarena mm, by yeah. Los Del Rio. Desposito. Oh, gosh, yeah. Louis Fonzi and Daddy Yankee featuring Justin Bieber. And most recently, last year, uh, for one week, Life Goes On by the K-pop band uh, hmm. BTS. So Interesting. that's it. Those are the only foreign language fil- uh, films, <laughs> the only foreign language songs to hit number one. Now, on do you know if it was inspired by or just one of those, you know, timing, like just happened, like coincident type deals? Because um, r- the same time that this song was popular was when the, the movie, movie, the Oscar winning right. Amadeus movie was also popular. So I don't know if he kind of saw that in the zeitgeist and wrote the song in a hurry. You know, I, I don't know. it just know. happened I, to work out. I remember when I was young, because 82, again, we're talking nine, 10 years old. Um, this was 86. Oh, 86. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. So, oh, so I was 13. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I think I vaguely recall that I thought the two went together. Um, but I, I think that was probably just my, you know, my absorption of. Well, you have a hit movie culture. and a hit song about Mozart, right? right? That's, that's right. naturally but you would I, think that. But my guess is that it was probably just coincidental yep. in timing. I, I don't see. And maybe he was writing on the on the, you know, the tale of, you know, the Oscar winning film. But I, I just, I don't know. I, I Looking back in hindsight, I, I really doubt there, that one influenced the other. Gotcha. But I, yeah. No idea. It's a good question. All right. You're up. My next one, also from 1982, uh, probably my, well, I won't say my, one of my favorite songs on this list. I'd have to go back to, to kind of verify that, but one of my favorite songs on this list from the uh, from the punk band The Clash. <sighs> Do you have this one we too? We have another match. <laughs> yeah. I knew we would. Rock the Casbah. Yes, yep. Rock the Casbah from Combat Rock. And uh, this was a little bit later in their career and uh, definitely their most commercial song in the U.S. Oh, yeah. The song reached number eight on Billboard, and it's billed over the piano part, which I think really makes this song. Uh, that was actually written by the drummer, uh, Topper Heaton. In fact, he also added the bass and the drum parts and kind of brought it all together before bringing it to the rest of the band. Uh, Joe Strummer loved the track, but he hated the lyrics. Right. So he rewrote them based on some lines that he'd been working on. Um, 
the, the song actually has been misinterpreted as supporting kind of Western military interventions in the Middle East. Correct. Yeah. Um, which, if you take in context the song uh, with, you know, at the time it was written in the early 80s and the 1953 coup and the 1979 revolution and the 1980 hostage crisis, if you look at it in that way, um, you can kind of see maybe where Strummer was coming from. But if you look at it from the interventions um, since then, yeah, it, it's unfortunately kind of become a rallying cry for this has, conflict yeah. with the Mideast. Um in fact, Joe Strummer uh, supposedly wept when he learned that Rock the Casbah was written on one of the bombs that was sent to Iraq. Yeah, I read that in, as well. Uh, in 1991. Broke down and cried. Yeah. And I believe after 9-11, Clear Channel banned it from um, from airplay on stations because people were using it as a rally cry for revenge after the 9-11 attacks. Would not surprise me. I They had the longest list of songs that were, uh, you know, to, to not be played. I am... Um, I don't know. I'm very likely that would make sense, but I um yeah no he did Strummer. I read that as well that he broke down and cried when he found that it was being used, um, you know, to to rally support for and to kind of uh, regal in in you know the the war that was taking place. Um, yeah, Strummer he decided to take Heaton's lyrics in a different direction. The band just felt they were very pornographic lyrics <laughs> from from what I, I I have no idea what they were of course uh, but the first line of Strummer's rewritten lyrics it had a specific genesis because manager Bernie Rhodes um, he, he was frustrated in the early combat rock sessions because every track ended up being really long um, and in one session he shouted to the band does everything have to be as long as Raga so that, that's kind of how it, it all began. Uh, if you don't know out there, uh, those listening to us, performances of improvisational Indian raga music can run 30 minutes or longer. Um, so Strummer then told Rolling Stone that he got back to the hotel that night and wrote it on a typewriter. The king told the boogeyman, you got to get that raga drop. Uh, he looked at it, and for some reason, he said he started to think about what someone had told him earlier, that you get lashed for owning a disco album in Iran. So that served as the inspiration for the rest of the lyrics about people defying the Arab ruler, um, the Sharif, and his ban on disco music and rocking the Casbah. Um, Strummer said in a 2000 documentary, I was trying to say fanaticism is nowhere. There's no tenderness or humanity in fanaticism. Um, I just, I love the song though, just because it, it it's so... It's so humorous in the way that he inserts language because it's not all Arabic. I mean, you know, he litters it with Mideast terminology. The Kasbah refers to ancient Walden districts in North African cities. It can also mean a castle or fortress. Uh, Muezzin is a man who calls Muslims to prayer in a mosque. A Bedouin is a nomadic Arab. Minarets are the towers from which the Muezzin calls Muslims to pray. But the lyrics also use uh, terms in humorous context from Arabic, Hebrew, Turkish, and Sanskrit language and culture um one gotta gotta give him a shout out the background vocals are provided by mick jones he and strummer typically wrote uh the lyrics of all clash songs together but in this case because of hedon's work the uh, jones had nothing left to contribute so he decided uh he would record the alarm of his watch (laughs) the little digital (laughs) yeah if if you listen very closely you'll, you'll actually hear it in the background the really sad part though is that this song really took off it 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 became this huge international hit, really, just as Heaton was fired from the band. He was let go because of his um, because of 
problems that, that had arisen from his heroin addiction. So he never actually got to see the, the fruits of his labor, you know, as a member of the clash. Remember the video? This one, no, I don't remember the video. You don't at all. remember the video? No. Um, it was kind of a, a, a satirical caricature of a traditional uh, Jewish man and a, a Muslim who are hitchhiking through Texas together. Really? Uh, being chased by an armadillo. <laughs> this sounds really <laughs> bizarre. Uh, and they do all sorts of things that their faiths do not uh, allow them to do. Like they stop at Burger King um, oh, yeah. to, to have a meal. They're drinking beer. And so it is a... Um, it, uh, Joe Stormer said it was kind of a... Basically reinforced his idea that the song was about um, kind of breaking barriers, breaking down barriers. Got it. Yeah. Now I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah, I, I I have no memory of that. Oh, video it's a great, it's, it's a fun video. Yeah, <laughs> definitely have to look at it. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Okay. Um, also, uh, that piano riff must have really been popular, um, or at least um, well liked by others, because Will Smith mm-hmm. um, used that for his Will Two K single. He sampled that little yeah. uh, part from the song as well. Yes, he did. Oh, how many matches do we have? Three so far, <laughs> and you have to pick. Because of the order. So because you of the order, yeah. If you'd gone first, yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd be deep into your alternates as well at this point. I, I need to come back with two more already. So let's go. I'm just going to do them in real time. Let's go. And my next two, again, still are uh, going to be alternates. Maybe this one, uh, I'll choose it as an alternate. It may be on your, on your short list, and you get to hit your alternates next. I'm going to give you one by Kiss. Rock nice. and roll all night. Nice. Do you have it? I did not choose it for one major reason. Why is that? <laughs> so now it's going to be an issue, but and it's a stupid reason not to pick the song um, as a as a Kiss fan because there there's the original studio version of the song, right? And then the which which live. was not a hit, right? Uh, then there's the of course Kiss Alive was huge, yeah. um, may have been the the first of the double live albums of the '70s that really kind of launched that trend, and that's the version that everybody knows. But as you know, when we make our playlists. With live songs, we can't fade in and fade out. So it's like, do we include the original, which <sighs> Go with the original. isn't as good, yeah. um, but we don't have to fade in and fade out, or the version that's better that everybody knows that we would have to just deal with the choppy ness of no, the mix I, I say we go dress to kill i am I'm, I'm a purist okay so, all right you know, we have, we have an alternate list we can hey you made the decision we can throw on so the live. all you kiss fans out there can't get angry at me for the choice hey because well, he picked it but but you start where it all begins you know right. um you know hardcore kiss fans actually they may even scoff a little bit at the populist track because it it most represents 
to the to the zeitgeist, you know, to the masses, the face painted heroes. But, but rock and roll night, it really is. It's a rock anthem for the ages, and for good reason. Simmons and Stanley, they wrote the track, which became their signature song, and it was usually played as the last song in their encores. Um, but at this point in the band's history, the two would usually help each other fill in the gaps. So rock and roll night. It came about because they felt they needed an anthem, a song that could be a rallying cry for all of their fans. So Stanley went back to the hotel, came up with the chorus and the melody. Then he went to Simmons, who wrote the verses. Um, I guess they used to write like that a lot. And as the two became better writers, they became either less willing to bend on their individual ideas, or they both figured their songs would be stronger developed by the person who wrote them. But the band's first two albums, uh, which were released in a dizzying 13-month blitz, they, they combined with a, a grueling tour schedule that helped to perfect a flashy and literally explosive stage show. Um, so the band, you know, that, that earned the band a devoted following among hard rock fans and a reputation as a band you did not want to open for. Um, or, or at least one that you didn't want opening for you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, there you go. You know, um, that's probably a better way to say it. Um, what it did not do, however, was sell very many records. Uh, Casablanca Records founder Neil Bogart figured out what was missing. He, he told the band, um, you know, for their third album, 1975's Dress to Kill, um, that rock bands didn't have anthems at this time. Uh, but, you know, Bogart was smart ahead of his time, and he basically encouraged them to come up with it. So with, with both band and label at the end of their financial ropes, they decided they had to throw a last-ditch Hail Mary. And six short months later, by releasing the double live album Alive, um, you know, finally, finally they, they peaked at reached number 12. Um, because this anthem that they, they hoped that they had hedged their bets on for Dress to Kill, it still did not chart until, as you said, the double live album came out. You show us everything you Kiss in many ways, especially with their early stuff, was a lot like Springsteen yeah. in the way that it was really hard to capture the magic of the live performance in the studio. And you saw that with early Springsteen as well. His mm -hmm. first several albums didn't do as well um, for him as uh, also until, well, I guess Born to Run kind of broke through. But yeah, um, you know, it's funny. Another uh, album that came, I believe, shortly after Kiss Alive, which would also give us the same dilemma if we were to choose the song, is uh, Live at Budokan from Cheap Trick. Yeah. Because I Want You to Want Me is the version that everybody knows from Live at Budokan, yeah. but the original, of course, didn't fare as well. Exactly. And most people don't know that studio version. Well, and, you know, that that was... That happened often in the seventies, though. Because I, I the live like, album, it was yeah, the live supreme. Album, yeah, the it 70s. was it was a huge thing, and you, it's been lost. I mean, now in the digital world with you know song downloads, it's it's just not a thing. I mean, hell, think Frampton comes alive. That's you know? another one. Yeah, I mean, 
that that entire album became legendary, and I would argue that many people had never heard of Frampton before the live album came out. Right. Um, but no, you are right. I, the, the live version is the one everyone knows. That's the song. That, that's the version that's played at the beginning of Detroit Rock City on 76's Destroyer. But no, I, I say we do Dress to Kill and, and Start Where It All Begins, and we'll say it the live version for the all right. Alternates. All right. So, Good enough. Good enough. I thought you would have that one. That's why I was hesitant to well, leave it for my alternates. Sometimes list. you leave off the songs that you assume that I'm going to pick, and vice versa. And so I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. No, I just didn't. Uh, maybe I guess I just didn't want to have to decide <laughs> which version. No, it's all good. To justify that. So it's all good. All right. Well, my next one, I doubt that you have, um, just because it's it's probably I don't. Not that you're not a fan. I think you appreciate the band, but I don't think you're as much of a fan as I am. Uh, and that is uh, the Velvet Underground's Rock and Roll. Mm. I had it for a while, and then I let it go. So this one is not 1982. This one, we're going back to 1970. And um, the song was written by Lou Reed, who said the song was really about him, uh, as rock and roll taught him that there is indeed life on this planet, and that movies and TV didn't move him like the radio did. Um, the Velvet Underground is arguably least in my opinion the most influential band of all time one of them at least uh, paving the way for experimental punk new wave alternative rock uh, rolling stone magazine lists them as the 19th greatest rock um, artist of all time and they were inducted to the rock hall in 1996 Janice said when she was just five years old there was nothing happening at all every time she puts on a radio there was And so even though the protagonist of the song is female, it really is about Reed and his experience. Yep. Um, the song, incidentally, was covered by a band that we've already talked about, The Runaways, mm-hmm. which I haven't heard that version either, so we'll have to throw that one on yeah, the alternates I, list. I, I read that uh, when I was doing my research. I, I left it off my list, but yeah, I, I was surprised by that too. I've never heard The Runaways version. But they so. changed, they changed, being an L.A. band, they changed the uh, the lyric from, from New York Station to L.A. Station. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, there are a few Velvet Underground songs, I think, that are more familiar to people that were, I mean, they weren't, you know, they weren't chart-topping hits in, in the 60s. They were very much an underground oh. type, of, type of band. Uh, but, but a lot of people know rock and roll, like they know um, um, Sweet Jane and, uh, and Heroin and some of those, those songs. So this right. is one that, that if you do know a little bit of, of your rock history and Velvet Underground, chances are you've heard this song. But it fits. It's another ode to rock and roll. Absolutely. Now, it, I, I had it there for a while. That was one I let go because I was sure, I was certain yeah. you, you would have that one. So, um, okay, well, this next one, oh, well, maybe I should stick with my alternates and do them in real time so I don't lose track. So, hold on. Um, all right. This one is just fun uh, because the irony slays me. Um, this one comes from 67, okay, from the album. It's, well, the album was titled Album 1700. Uh, the song hit number nine. It is by Peter, Paul, and Mary, and it is called I Dig Rock and Roll Music. 
I'm not familiar with this. You don't song. know this one. I don't know this well, one. Th- let me let me school you because this one is. I, I almost didn't include it because it actually it does not speak favorably about rock and roll. So I'll, I'll explain. Peter Paul and Mary were folk artists. Exactly. Uh, manager Albert Grossman he put together Peter Paul and Mary in '61. Uh, the three were part of the Greenwich Village folk scene, and Grossman believed that there would be a market for three well-blended voices with this hip, beatnik look. And his instincts were correct, because their first album, Peter, Paul, and Mary, which was released in 62, it spent seven weeks at number one and 10 months in the top 10 album chart. And then in early 62, Grossman followed that up by signing a, uh, a young guy named Robert Zimmerman, uh, known to the masses as Bob Dylan, and several of the trio's biggest hits were actually songs written by Dylan. But I dig uh, rock and roll music. It was written by Paul Stuckey. He's the Paul of the group's name. Um, and it was in response to the quickly rising rock music, and this is in quotations, his quote, fad of the time. Right. Okay, because the folk rockers thought that, uh, you know, rock as it existed, uh, as it was playing on the charts, was not going to last. So Stuckey, Mason, Dixon, uh, they felt that rock music was inferior to folk music. And while they felt that folk tunes were deep and thoughtful, they thought that rock and roll was shallow and only appealed to the lowest denominator of record buyers. So to express this opinion, the three of them composed the song, which lampooned three of the most popular rock artists at the time, while also skewering their fans. So the song's first verse just mocks rock lovers themselves, heavily using the slang terms of the time like dig and happening, uh, while also stating that rock lovers don't like quote-unquote smart music, but prefer vapid bubblegum songs. So depending on your perspective, right away, the song is either a gentle or a bitter tweaking of the ascendant rock genre, um, which in the past three years had left folkies like Peter, Paul, and Mary in the dust. And a genuine celebration of that genre, you know, some people read it as that as well. It's kind of a neat trick, but you had to consider the song condescending, or many do, I think, um, just a condescending and, and seriously ill-conceived dig by snarky literati, okay? But the bitterness was certainly there. Mary Travers had told the Chicago Daily News in 66 that rock lyrics were badly written. She said, quote, when the fad changed from folk to rock, they didn't take any good writers with them. But the thing was, this time, maybe really one of the only times the group really had themselves a peat because this song... Um, on album 1700, where it appears, they're backed by members of the Poppers, which were a Toronto-based psychedelic rock band that Grossman had recently signed. The bongos that suffused the song hark back to the group's original beatnik image, if not its sound. But the three capture some of the essence of each of the three acts they then make fun of. The Mamas and the Papas harmonies, uh, the impression is spot on, Mary Travers being inflection perfect. Um, in her Mama Cass, yeah, at the end of the accusatory line. They make fun of Donovan's mumbly psychedelics, and then they mock the Beatles backwards playing studio tricks. Hmm. Um, and and the tricky, bouncy counterpoint uh, to all of it is the pa-pa-pa's at the end that wraps up the whole thing. Uh, to use an, It was kind of, a, you know, to use an, an, an anachron, anachronistic word. Wow, that's a hard word. Um, it, it was... Um, it brought pizzazz, I guess, to the to the to the entirety of the the song, but this is where the irony is. Okay, and I know I'm going on a little long on this one, but um, the band—it's kind of too bad for them because the earnest and their pious crusading for social justice through music that they exemplified was now pretty much a thing of the past, and the culture had seen the end of the effectiveness of such tactics. 
It was morphing into something more fun, weirder, perhaps blissfully not as honest, the counterculture. So, you know, I, I, I've always loved the song. And for years, I thought it was actually a Mamas and the Papas song, which it was because the Mamas and the Papas covered it. Okay. So you can't help but wonder how Peter, Paul, and Mary, as they watch their anti-rock song climb steadily up the Billboard charts, become a platinum rock record, and in what must have been the ultimate insult, be covered by one of the song's targets, the Mamas and the Papas. Um, you know, it, the song did everything that they were writing against. And it's just, it, it, nonetheless, it's just this catchy tune. You've never, you don't no, know this I song. No, I haven't heard it. Well, we might have to break so you can hear it. It's nope. just, it is a killer tune. Um, but yeah, I, I, it just goes to show you that in the words of Stephen King, you know, I, sarcasm will get you nowhere in this world unless you write for a mad magazine, I suppose. I dig rock and roll music and love to get the chance to play and sing it. I figure it's about the happiest sound going down today. The message made. Those folkies are, are savage. They, um, they really are. Yeah. Well, so. and, you know, they're your hero. You know, you mentioned Bob Dylan. Right. Um, you know, Bob Dylan is very eclectic and he's throughout his career decided to experiment with lots of different types of music. Right. Folk was kind of his folk. Folk rock was kind of his jumping off point and actually just folk. Um, but it was very, very controversial. I believe it was right around 66 with... Um, uh, probably like a Rolling Stone, I believe was what may have been the beginning when he really introduced electric, right? Um, an electric rock band behind him, mm-hmm. and he played um, several shows. And one particular show in England, where all these folkies came to see him and booed him Not, the wait, entire show. Did that? Did he do that first, or was it the Birds? that actually were the first to bring the electric guitar to Oh, them. they they made, yeah, there are other bands I'm sure that did, but the fact that Dil, Dylan, their the, hero, Dil, yeah, no, no, I, I did this. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, not only was he booed in, in some of those shows over in the UK, but when he played um, Newport Folk Festival, which he played every year, and he came out with an electric guitar, he was booed as well. Right. Uh, for the same sentiments that you discussed. Uh, and yet, I would argue that uh, many of their accusations of bubblegum rock may be true. Bob Dylan did not have an intelligible or well, he he did have unintelligible <laughs> lyrics, but they were intelligent yes. lyrics, uh, and so um, their assessment of rock, uh, in case of, of their once hero, doesn't really apply right. to him. Well, you know, Dylan, that's just been a recurring theme for him. He's been booed off stage time and time again because every time the audience thinks they figured him out, he just pulls the rug out from under them and you know plays around and tries something entirely new so by the way if you haven't had an opportunity to see um i think they just released it this year martin scorsese took footage from um the rolling thunder review tour of 1975 yeah, i did hear that and yeah. put it together in a really 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 nice documentary excellent excellent okay I, yeah I, I heard the documentary was that i have I've not seen it yet yeah so good stuff good stuff 
Okay, my turn. Yes. Um, sticking with the kind of alternative um, music um, here with my next pick. Um, and like the Velvet Underground, Neil Young mm-hmm. inspired many modern rock bands, most notably 90s grunge. So that's why it's an alternative. We all know that you know, Neil Young is a, is a classic rock darling, but he is known as the godfather of grunge, especially with his crazy horse stuff. Yes, yes he is. And so there's that kind of through line. In fact, um, Pearl Jam backed him on the Mirrorball album. So right. very much part of that alternative uh, subgenre. Young got the idea for this song, which, by the way, is Rockin' in the yes, Free World. I figured. Came yeah. out in 89. Uh, Young got this idea for a lyric after uh, they, they had a tour scheduled for the Soviet Union and it was canceled. And Crazy Horse guitarist Pancho San Pedro said, well, we'll just have to keep Rockin' in the Free World. And so Young uh, took that and, uh, and turned it into a song. Uh, the song itself heavily criticizes the politics of the day, including uh, the early months of the H.W. Bush administration. He had just kind of taken over as president, so I'm not sure how fair it was to attack his administration at the time. Right. But uh, it, it was more kind of referencing his campaign rhetoric uh, of A Thousand Points of Light, A Kinder, Gentler Nation. Yeah. Some of those, those phrases make their way into the song. The song is, you mentioned uh, anthems. The song has become a rock anthem and has become one of uh, Neil Young's best-known songs. It's been covered by The Alarm, as well as Pearl Jam, who, as I mentioned, were heavily influenced by Young's career. Um, The song, incidentally, is one of several that Donald Trump insisted on playing before political rallies. (laughs) Right. Despite Young's explicit reminders that he does not authorize the song for this use. Uh, He did, however, give Bernie Sanders his blessing to use it during his political rallies. Hmm. So, rocking in the free world. Yeah, it's just a, it's a fun anthem. You know, Young, I love Young. He's one of my top 10. I, I know you do. And he's yeah. done everything from, from the folky acoustic stuff to really, really bizarre stuff in the 80s. Um, and, and, and I, but I, I think I love his crazy horse stuff the most. Um, his, you know, like a hurricane and, and cinnamon girl and right. especially um, Cortez the Killer. Um, just the, these, these jamming songs that, uh, you know they're they're hard, but but they work. Oh yeah, no, no. I um, you know, Neil Young is one of those artists I can take or leave. I I, I won't turn the station when he comes on, but I he's not an artist that I have ever you know tuned very deliberately uh, in to listen to. I, I just I don't know. I he just doesn't do it. I not that I dislike the music. He just he's never really reached that level for me but yeah. I, I know you're a yeah huge no he's he's, he's definitely top 10 for me yeah so 
All right, rocking in the free world. Very cool. Well, here is my sixth and final song for side A. This one, I have a feeling you may have left off because you were expecting me to include it. If not, we may have a match. Uh, it's from an album from 1980 titled Glass Houses. And that's why I left it off now, my I list. Fi- I figured Now, you- it's on my alternates list just in case you didn't choose it. Well, and that's what I did with Kiss for, right, for right. you. Yeah. Um, so my sixth song, uh, it was his first number one, Billy Joel, and it's still rock and roll to me. Um, you know, Joel's first number one hit, I, it was just Joel's sarcastic take on the music industry. And very specifically, the music critics who were unfairly dogging him in the press. Um, he was actually, you know, it's, it's hard to, to remember when, but he was a critic's favorite when he began. Uh, Piano Man, especially on the strength of Captain Jack. Um, you know, the music press began labeling him, you know, a, a, a the young artist to look out for. But very soon after he had actually reached that level of stardom, uh, they, they kind of changed their way and they began to refer to him as a middle of the road, you know, singer songwriter who just continued to perform direct and, and filled albums with unnecessary filler, if you will. And I wouldn't say direct, but uh, there is a big difference between Captain Jack and, and honesty. Oh, no, there, and there yeah, is, there yeah. is. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, Joel, he, he grew increasingly frustrated by it. And it was. It was on the success of ballads like Just the Way You Are and Honesty. Exactly. Uh, popular artists, you know, they're often the targets for journalistic derision. But while most of the artists choose to ignore it, Joel wrote this song in response. So the lines, it doesn't matter what they say in the papers because it's always been the same old scene. There's a new band in town, but you can't get the sound from a story in a magazine. Very specifically written to attack the press that was, you know, attacking him. In a 2014 interview with Howard Stern, Joel said, uh, sometimes the press gave me a hard time and I liked giving them a hard time back. In my neighborhood, somebody hits you, you hit them right back. So the song irked critics, of course. A Rolling Stone writer even called called it the worst song ever written about rock and roll. Uh, but that probably only goes to show that Billy had hit the right note in what he was trying to do. The song struck a chord with fans and other musicians too. It spent two weeks at number one. It's his first number one, yeah, one of three yeah, actually. Yeah, his first. And it was actually 11 weeks in the top 10, making it one of the year's biggest hits. That year, Joel also received the Grammy Award for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance. Um, he also wrote the song though, interestingly, as a criticism of new wave music, which was climbing to the top of the music scene at the time. Uh, in 81, with the arrival of MTV, you know, new wave music was just pushed to the height of its popularity. And while the critics continued to slam Joel, they fawned over the emerging new wave artists, and Joel took notice. So Joel didn't have a problem with new wave, but he scoffed at how it was being categorized. From his perspective, the, the sound was just a variation of power pop that had been around since the 60s. He said at the time, I like the music, but it's not particularly new. And in this way... It's still rock and roll to me was also his response to the music industry's excessive concern with image over music. So in Funny, ironically, imitated the style of New Wave while lyrically slapping the genre in the face. Everybody's, everybody's talking about the new sound funny, but it's still rock and roll to me. Yeah, I mean, Joe Jackson's all over that album as far as like stylistic. Oh, so very so much. he yeah. definitely picked up on that New Wave vibe. You know, I don't, I get, I don't. And I think you kind of clarified yourself. I don't see it as him dissing a new wave. Oh, no, and that's Like you said, said it's, yeah. it's him basically saying all these subgenres, it's still rock and roll. There's really nothing new under the sun. It's just a different exactly. way to kind of play with the genre. What's the matter with the clothes I'm wearing? Can't you tell that your tie's too wide? Maybe I 
your bus and old tab collars. Welcome back to the age of jive. Where have you been hiding out lately, honey? You can't dress as flashy till you spend a lot of money. Everybody's talking about the new sound. Funny, but it's still rock and roll to me. What's the matter with the car I'm driving? Can't you tell that it's out of style? Should I get a set of white wall tires? Are you gonna cruise a miracle mile? Nowadays you can't be too sentimental. Your best bet's a true baby blue continental. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, it's still rock and roll to me. There's another song that's going to be on part two that I want to talk about that kind of is the opposite of, of it, it's the same sentiment, but maybe in a different way. But yeah, I kind of like how he just says, what, what's new about any of this stuff? You know, right, yeah. His response to critics. Uh, incidentally, I will add one more little point. Weird Al oh, yeah. <laughs> wrote a parody of the song called It's Still Billy Joel to Me. Yeah. <laughs> for the Dr. Demento radio show. Uh, it never appears on any of his records, but uh, if we could, if there is a recording of it on Spotify, we'll definitely add it. I don't know if it, I've, I've heard it on YouTube. <laughs> I don't know if it's on Spotify. Which um, which is kind of uh, satirical, of basically the same thing the critics were, were trying to say. Right. Um, and and, and yeah, there's some truth to the fact that Billy Joel is Billy Joel, but I like that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he's it's ubiquitous pop. I, I get it. But I think it's become, I mean, his songs from, from the 70s and early 80s have become like like the standards, like like they the, really the new standards. I mean, just really, really great pop songs. And yeah. there's, there's nothing wrong with that. No. And, you know, it's it really, I know he always wanted to be the rock and roller. Joel is just not a rock and roller. He is a popular music artist. Um, but there's nothing wrong with that. No. I mean, Fleetwood Mac and Paul McCartney, I mean, a lot of these huge, you know, these these monster artists you know, they paved the way for pop music to actually have a voice and to say something, to mean right. something. And Billy Joel was part of that movement. I, I, you know, I champion his work. I mean, he's he has some rocking tunes, but yeah, he's what I thought was always unfair was the critics always making the comparison to Elton John. I mean, they're two very yes, different artists. Right. Elton is a prodigy on the piano, and of course, he does not write his own lyrics. So I always thought it was a little unfair. Sure. That that. Uh, well, of course, Captain Jack would be would be a critical darling because it's it's really right. dark and it's making a statement about his generation. Yeah. I mean, Joel is not one to. I mean, you have Allentown. There are some exceptions. Allentown. Right. Good Night Saigon. Generally speaking, he doesn't get very political. Um, and Captain Jack was was political in the way that you know, yeah. just very observant of of what happened to, or at least was going on with his generation. Yeah, it it really was. It was a critical darling. In fact, they they really most of the critics were very kind to Joel through turnstiles, but then the stranger hit, and it just they they reversed course. And Joe, of course, very famously ended every concert, uh, you know, with an expletive. Yes, uh, right, right. In response to the. To the critics. Well, I would argue Phil Ramone, that's when Phil Ramone came on board and, and took very, very fine songs and turned them into great songs. Yeah. There's something to be said for production. And yeah, certain types of music, you don't want really slick. You don't want punk music to be polished. But uh, but good pop music, you know, good popular rock music. You can see if you listen, if you listen to and we're going off on Joel again, of course we are. Right. (laughs) But uh, but if you listen to Songs in the Act, which was a live album where Phil Ramone basically kind of rearranged and and produced a lot of the old Billy Joel uh, songs, um, you can see the potential that were in some of those songs, too. Mm -hmm. It could have been giant hits, kind of like the hits that were on The Stranger and Glass Houses and so forth. Without question. 
All right. So this is my last choice. Your last okay. choice for side A. And uh, this one, you might be surprised because I'm more of a Beatles guy. Okay. I'm not as much of a Stones guy. Ah, I, I, you know, I did not know if you'd have it. I just, I, this one just fell off my list. I just didn't have room for it, but I, I know where you're going. But I, but I like this, this I like um, the Stones. Let's put it this way. I wouldn't consider myself a fan per se, other than the fact that I hugely respect their contribution to rock. Right. Um, I don't have, you know, many of their of their albums. I don't know their deep cuts. I'm not a fan in that way. Okay, but it, but there are several you know contributions to rock and roll that I like, and this is one of them I like very much. And it was on point to what we're talking about, right? Songs about the genre. It's only rock and roll, but and I like it. I like it. it. Yeah. Um, a Rolling Stones classic features David Bowie, by the way, on on backing vocals. Um, only reached the top twenty on Billboard. But Jagger explained that the song is in response to fans and critics, and this is 75 at the time, so they had their, I mean, you know, the Beatles stopped in 1970, the Stones kept going. Um, it's a response to critics that was saying that, that each Stones album wasn't as good as his predecessor. You know, they just, in, in critics' minds, we just talked about that with Billy Joel, they, they, they weren't what they used to be. And um, it, it was also, incidentally, in, inspired by... Um, the arrows I love rock and roll. So there's right. another kind of little connection there. Yep. But he was basically wanting to say, you know, you, you keep wanting us to produce these these grand works of art, and it's just it, it's, it's just rock and roll, right? And the simplicity of that. The song, although kind of tongue-in-cheek, is a little bit dark in the lyrics at, at points. For instance, um, if I could stick a knife in my heart, suicide right on stage, would it be enough for your teenage lust? Would it help ease the pain, ease your brain? <laughs> so granted, yes, it's yes, satirical. It's He's basically saying, how much do you want me to bleed here, uh, critics? Uh, because you know what? It's rock and roll. Yep. I'm like... <laughs> People hum along to the tune because it's a nice little, little pop melody there, but a lot of people don't delve to as not a lyrics person myself. Right. Um, it, no, it, it, it's kind it of shocking. Dark. Although, in fairness, even if you are a lyrics person, Jagger often is indecipherable yes, in, in what he true. sings that's as true. well. So he doesn't make it easy for a lot of people. There was a video for the song. Um, so back in 75, you know, right about the time they were making, they called them promotional films at the time, um, which featured, I don't know if you remember this, I remember seeing this on VH1 Classic, uh, featured the band performing in sailor suits oh, in a yes. tent filled with bubbles. Yes. Oh, I do remember that. And, and um, uh, apparently, they wore the sailor suits because they didn't want to get their, their actual clothes ruined by the, the, the bubbles, which were made from soap detergent. And so they wore these sailor suits to protect their own clothes. And I guess the bubbles kind of got out of hand, and, 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 and Bill Wyman almost like drowned from bubbles. <laughs> it was crazy. 
the Wait, making he of almost this. drowned They're, from bubbles. Well, just they kept piling up, and he kept inhaling oh, okay, them. Okay, and gotcha, gotcha. Okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like most classics, this song's been covered by by a number of artists since. But uh, yeah, I, I, I may not add a lot of Rolling Stones music to these mixtapes going forward, but this is definitely one. Give Me Shelter is one that I love. Mm. Brown Sugar is a great song. So there are a lot of classic Stones songs. I just can't claim to be a fan like I am of the right. Beatles. And I'm, and I'm much the same. I my, Now my dad, I think we've talked about this before, my dad hates the Beatles, loved the Stones. Um, I, I just... Growing up, I I just gravitated to you know the four you know the, the Fab Four. I mean, I just couldn't help myself. I I've always liked the Stones. There are some songs by them I absolutely love. I mean, it's just a rabid response, and I will defend them as you know these great rock anthems. But on the whole, yeah, I've just never been, and which is really funny because I love the blues, and you know that that's the Stones' bread and butter. But I just. I don't know. I, they've just never done it for me. But I like them a lot more than the Who. I know you like the oh, Who. I love, oh, yeah, you gosh, love the Who. Yeah, no, the I, am who not is... a, I am not a Who fan at wow. all. So, That's another another discussion there. Yeah, it is. Here's the thing about the Stones. Just to, incidentally, we got to keep it moving here. But, you know, people wonder what the Beatles had done. Had they stayed together, what would they have done? And, and you can look at their solo careers and kind of see a glimpse as to what may have right. gone forth, right? Uh, but the Stones, for as great as they were, did kind of fall into that trap of um, doing doing disco during the disco era. Yes, they did. You know, doing the synthesized stuff during, synthesized stuff during the early 80s, kind of changing with the time in a way kind of you know keeping up with the trends of course Elton John did that and so did I mean uh, Rod Stewart a lot of artists a lot of classic rock artists have their disco phase because they're trying to stay relevant um, and you would say maybe the Beatles wouldn't have done that but then Paul McCartney had a few I was gonna a few Paul, disco yeah, tunes Paul, as well. Paul would have done it and John and John would have come at him for for doing it so yeah it, it just really, don't say goodnight would be the, the major disco oh, yes yes uh, Paul McCartney tune so yep all right your turn no, that that was number you, six. That was it, really. Yeah, wow. Yeah, okay. We're, we're at the end. We gotta. We have to Excellent. put so, these together. So let's make sure we have the six because sometimes we <laughs> yeah, end up going. Yeah, that's true. I jumped all over. And, my list, uh, and we had a couple. So uh, I had. I love rock and roll. Uh, rock this town. Rock the Casbah. Rock and roll. Rocking in the free world. And it's only rock and roll, but I like it. I did not have to use any alternates. Okay. Well, I have here old time rock and roll. Jailhouse rock. I have. It's still rock and roll to me. And then I used three alternates, Rock and Roll All Night by Kiss, and I Dig Rock and Roll Music by Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Rock Me Amadeus. All right, that is. Look at that. There's our 12. We were able to count this time. Okay, well, we are going to uh, take a quick break here and decide on the order for these 12 songs for side A of our first mixtape of the first episode of the second season. We'll be right back. And we're back. And, you know, Alan, I just love, we take for granted modern technology. Yes. Because I remember when we were, uh, what, in 1982, um, if we wanted to see a particular music video, we had to turn on MTV. And. And wait. And and hope. (laughs) And if you were lucky enough to have (laughs) a VCR, you could set up a six-hour you know, while you were at school and come home and then fast forward and hope you found the video that you wanted. Right. Um, in today's modern technology, I simply just said to Alan, I said, oh, by the way, let's watch the Rock the Casbah video since we mentioned it uh, to kind of spur, and you do remember, 
um, the video. And so within a few clicks of the keyboard, we're watching the video. Yeah. No, I, you're right. I Once you started it I, and the big oil drill behind them, I, I remember the video, but it had been, well, for any music video, it has been years. But right. I, I, I just really, I did not remember the specifics of it, but that armadillo is just <laughs> so random. <laughs> no, it was, it was fun. I uh, can't remember the last time I would have seen them. Probably, what, 82 would yeah. have been the last time I would have seen it. So, Well, especially in early, in 82 would have been early MTV. They didn't have a lot of offerings, and so a lot of videos were put in heavy rotation. Right, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, we do have our um, order for side A of the rock and roll mixtape. So we're going to begin with, and we're also going to title this mixtape, I Love Rock and Roll from Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Going on to It's Only Rock and Roll, But I Like It by the Rolling Stones, then into Old Time Rock and Roll by Bob Seger, and then Jailhouse Rock by Elvis Presley, followed by Rock This Town by the Stray Cats, or just Stray Cats, I suppose. Yes. Uh, I dig Rock and Roll Music by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Rock and Roll by The Velvet Underground. Rockin' in the Free World by Neil, not so young anymore. Uh, Rock and Roll All Night by Kiss. We did go with the studio version on that just because it made a better mix without the crowd noise. Going on into Rock the Casbah by The Clash. It's Still Rock and Roll to Me by Billy Joel. And finishing off the side with Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. It's pretty solid side A. It is. It, it is. really is. I, I think we... We did very well, but you are, you're, you're absolutely right. That is so 80s dominant, really. <laughs> it is. Not that that is a bad thing. We are Gen X, but yeah, it's, it's, be curious to see what side B looks like next week. Yes, so, yes. All right. Well, anything else to add? I don't think so. I think uh, I just need to kind of work on my pronunciation, well, enunciation. Well, we're, we're all a little music rusty. music trivia. Yeah, it was a very rusty tongue-tied It's been a long time. I return. think our, what, our last episode was the special episode for Valentine's Day. So that right. was back in February. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're dusting off the cobwebs. Uh, the snow is, is, is melted. And uh, looking forward to going into summer and having lots and lots of interesting mixtape choices to offer you folks. Yeah, it's going to be a fun season. We have some really creative ideas coming and up. If you're a newcomer, by the way, our, our social media presence, thank you, Alan, by the way. He is in charge of our social media presence and done a wonderful job um, growing our, our footprint, on, especially on Facebook and on Instagram. And so um, we've picked up a lot of people um, that uh, some of them who may come for the memes, but hopefully we'll stay for the podcast so I, I think more of them are staying around for the music for the podcast than, than I expected they would but I, I don't think we have enough of them yet on board so still working on that well but. we'd love to hear from you because we know uh, you know we know we there are listeners and we do hear from people from time to time but the more the merrier and it really does make it a little bit easier to know that we're not just talking to ourselves in my basement correct <laughs> yeah, yeah um, if we were we'd have to probably second guess uh, our objective here whether or not it's worth the time but no i we we continued to have downloads through the winter so i i you know it's i, I think we're, we're making a name for ourselves slowly definitely, and steadily definitely. people so, tuning in that's what's great yep. yep all right well uh just a shout out we do have sponsors um so jay callahan painting uh based out of cleveland you can find her on facebook for all of your painting needs and of course there is an affordable DJ, Affordable Entertainment, and very specifically, uh, one of the things that they offer is Tuesday Night Live Trivia. You can find Affordable Live Tuesday Trivia on Facebook as well. So we just want to say thank you to them. Their their help and their sponsorship has really helped to grow that Facebook presence. So uh, we, we very much are in debt 
to them. But that's all I got. So all right. let's go ahead and close this thing. You start. I start. You start. Oh, do I start? You start. Oh, my gosh. It's been a long time. <laughs> Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits this season. But for now, press pause, lift that needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side. Thank you.